January 2020 is now done and dusted. And with that, we have already had the most depressing day of the year, which, let me assure you, is not a reference to something on Friday, but Blue Monday, which was just under two weeks ago on Monday the 20th of January. Now, scientists used a very sophisticated formula, which goes like this. Weather plus monthly salary minus debt all multiplied by time since Christmas to the power of time since failing New Year's resolutions, all divided by motivational levels times the vague nagging feeling of a need to do something to sort everything out. And you turn the handle on that particular equation and out pops the third Monday in January as the bluest, most depressing day of the year. But what that means now, of course, is that we have passed the nadir and it's only up from here. Now, of course, real psychologists have been quick to point out that this is all complete corporate-sponsored gibberish, pseudoscience designed to get people to spend money to make themselves feel better during the post-Christmas spending slump. But the reality is that we all function with our own personal happiness formula. We probably won't have reduced it to mathematical symbols, and we probably may not even realise that we have one. But we all do have some kind of happiness formula, because we know what the ingredients are that we think we need to make life okay. The one thing that will improve my job, my house, my friendships, my marriage, or my lack of marriage, my school, my church, my country. It's easy to think, well, if this can somehow be fixed, all will be well. And of course, while we're waiting, or if indeed, if that one thing turns out to be impossible to achieve, we feel miserable. Because that's the one thing we must have and we can't have it. Now, that desire for the one thing that will make everything better is a very human desire and it's a desire shared by these very human figures that we meet in the book of Genesis and in particular Jacob. Jacob we've seen if you've been here is the grandson of Abraham the one of whom God said I'm going to save the world through you and your family and Abraham wasn't perfect but he was a man of faith. He trusted God's promises and he acted on them most of the time. The line of promise continues through Isaac, about whom we don't learn a great deal, except that he's rather weak and ineffective and allows a fair amount of dysfunction to go on in his own family. And then to Jacob, and we've seen he's the the one whose name means the one who grasps. He's manipulated his brother Esau to give him his birthright. He's He's deceived his father into blessing him instead of Esau. And yet, this Jacob, we learn is God's chosen one. God has chosen him to continue the line of promise, to be in due course the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet the picture that we get of him is one of a conflicted man who struggles with sin and temptation in a very real, very human way. Just like we do, if we're honest about ourselves. And here in chapter 29 is a story then of desire, just like we've been thinking about. Desire, disillusionment, and finally fulfilment. And if you look on the back of the notice sheet, you can see those headings if you want to note anything down. 
So let's see how this account speaks into our lives and our heart's desires today. So first, desire. Verse 1, Jacob goes to the land of the east and he sees a well. Now to understand what's going on here, let me um, tell you about a film I saw recently. It has a woman and a man. The woman is beautiful, the man is tall, dark and handsome. But when the woman first meets the man, she thinks he's a pompous idiot. And she rolls her eyes and declares she would never fall in love with someone like that. Now, just from those details that I've given you, you know how the story ends, don't you? You don't know what the film is, but you already know that it's a love story. It's probably a romantic comedy. It ends with the woman discovering she was, in fact, mistaken. This man has hidden depths of some sort, and they live happily ever after. Now, what film was that? Well, it could have been Bridget Jones's Diary, Pride and Prejudice, Top Gun, La La Land. The point is, this is what they call a trope. A standard way of telling a love story, which immediately allows the audience to kind of orient themselves, kind of, oh yeah, I know what this is, this is a love story, these are the sorts of things I'm expecting to happen. And that is the kind of thing that's going on here with Jacob and his well and his flocks. This is actually the second love story that we've seen uh, at a well in Genesis. Chapter 24 had Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for Isaac, and the servant meets Rebekah at a well. And Rebekah is the sister of Laban, who we now meet again. Now, there's no reason to think that this repetition means that it's all somehow made up. You know, I have some friends who are now married, but if you made a film about them, it would start with her thinking that he was an idiot, because that's what happened. But you could, t- you could tell the story in a way that made it sound like a kind of romantic comedy. And that is presumably what's going on here, do you see? Telling the story in a way that allows the audience to kind of see where they are. This is meant to be a love story to do with wells and sheep, because this is how they told love stories. But the thing about tropes in literature is that it's where the story you're telling deviates from the norm that the drama happens. That's what you need to look out for. So in chapter 24, Abraham's servant prays as he comes to the well. Please show me, Lord, the one that you have in mind to marry Isaac. Now, what do we find here in chapter 29? Here, well, it's just Jacob himself turning up, and there's no prayer at all. In fact, there's just a little bit of showing off. So he meets the shepherds at the well with their flocks, verse 4, has a chat with them. And verse 7, Jacob, who, remember, was the quiet brother out of Jacob and Esau, preferring to stay among the tents than hunt in the open fields, This same Jacob has some helpful advice. Now, do you recognise Jacob in yourself or in others? You know, forget mansplaining. This is shepherdsplaining or something like that. You know, Jacob, the armchair sheep expert, advises the shepherds to stop lazing around, get on with watering and get back out to the pasture, which they're not very impressed to hear, as you can see. But then Rachel arrives 
And Jacob sees her, and he sees her sheep, verse 10, but that's all he sees. Now again, back in chapter 24, the emphasis there was on Rebecca's hard work and her service. Yes, she was a very beautiful lady in, in chapter 24, but they see how uh, it's brought out how, how, she, uh, how hard she works. And all we know of Rachel is her beauty, as is made more explicit in verse 17. And maybe in the back of our minds we have Proverbs chapter 31. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who serves the Lord is to be praised. And so again, he, uh, J- Jacob takes the opportunity to show off. He, he single-handedly rolls the stone away, a job normally for several men. Look at me, look how strong I am. Then he kisses his cousin with tears and he introduces himself as Rebecca's son. And immediately all thoughts therefore go back to that previous meeting in chapter 24 because that all ended very happily for Rebecca and Isaac. So off goes Laban and he runs to meet him. Why is he doing that? He, he, he probably remember what happened last time. Abraham's servant greeted him with gifts of camels. So Laban's thinking, I know how this goes. I know what's waking, waiting for me. And so he breaks with convention and he runs. But when he arrives, there will be no camels. So he, he embraces Jacob. Is he, is he feeling for gold under his clothing to make up for this? We don't know. So... Verse 14, you, Jacob, are my own flesh and blood. And we're about to discover how true that is. There's an innocent enough sounding question. You know, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Hang on a minute, this is family. Why is there talk of wages at all? Laban knows where this story of a man meeting one of his relatives at the well is supposed to be going, and he's already worked out a way of capitalising on that, family or not, because he has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. But of the two, he knows that superficially, at least, it's going to be easier for him to find a man for Rachel. Now, if all our anti-patriarchal hackles are being raised by this way of doing courtship, and the obligation of a father to find a husband for his daughters and so on. Well, remember, these stories are, t- are just telling it how it was, warts and all. It doesn't exactly end well, does it? So it can hardly be thought to be holding up a fine example of how to do relationships in the 21st century. This is not the point of these stories. The point is Laban sees the opportunity here in the mess to sort out a problem that he has. Because, of course, Jacob, who is a doer, who loves to prove himself, as he tried with the shepherds and as he did with the stone, Jacob has seen what he wants, or rather, who he wants. Desire has set in. And Rachel is now Jacob's answer to that question that we began with. What is the one thing that, if you can just get this, everything will be okay, Jacob is now set on getting Rachel. He will do anything, even work for seven long years, far longer than could ever be justified, even if there was a kind of technical dowry involved. I want her, I must have her, I will do anything for her. Now this is what human beings so often do, isn't it? It's what we do. 
when we give up everything to go after the promotion or the relationship or the success and the acceptance and the health and the wealth and the happiness that we think, if I just get that, everything will be okay and therefore I will do anything for it. But just look at Laban's response as Jacob says what he's willing to do. Does he say yes? Does he agree? Does he shake hands? No. Well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. It's nice and ambiguous, isn't it? Not committing himself to anything, actually. And we're set for the second act, disillusionment. Disillusionment. Seven years pass remarkably quickly, we learn. But verse 21, you can sense the desperation from Jacob. Give me my wife. I want to lie with her. That's a modern English fudge, actually, for Jacob being bluntly explicit with his future father-in-law about what he is longing for after all this time. I have done what we agreed. You owe me. So there's a wedding. But what is this? Verse 23, he takes Leah. And he gives her to Jacob instead. And it's a wedding and there's alcohol involved, presumably. It's dark and he sleeps with Leah. And when morning came, there was Leah. And we we laugh because it's genuinely funny, but because also it is such poetic justice for Jacob, the deceiver. Do you see verse 25? What have you done? I served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? But then Laban, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. And the thing is, in the light of all that's taken place with Jacob and Esau, Jacob, the younger brother, do you remember, displacing Esau, taking his birthright and his blessing? How can Jacob possibly argue with this? Laban knows exactly what he's doing, and Jacob has been deceived just like Isaac was. Do you see, Isaac was blind, wasn't he? And, and, And Jacob was in the dark on his wedding night. Isaac relied on touch as... Uh, He felt Jacob with his goat skins made to feel like Esau's rough skin. And Jacob has now been deceived by his own touch in the dark. So what can Jacob possibly say? Do you see? And he's left with the disillusionment of his unfulfilled desire. And it's like what so often happens on those occasions when we think... Actually, the, the, this one thing that I've been longing for, maybe even since childhood or whatever it is, this one thing, it's coming true. I'm getting it. But what often happens is the longed-for promotion just creates further desires for promotion. We muscle into that friendship group at school or even at the office and it just reveals another inner ring of people that you want to get into. Or the marriage that you've longed for, that person that you've longed for, it turns out this marriage involves two sinners after all. Or the house, you've got it fixed, finally done the thing that you've been planning for for years, but do you know what? There's always more things to do on the house. Jacob now has the prospect of another seven years' work to pay for what he wants. And even though he now has Rachel too, we'll see next time the strife 
that his family will experience. The title next week is The Battle of the Brides. Polygamy is possible in the Old Testament, but it's against God's blueprint for marriage between one man and one woman in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not how it's meant to be, and it never works out well for anyone. So Jacob is very human in his desires and his disillusionment. He's a sinner whose life is as messy and dysfunctional as it gets. What he deserves is God's judgment. What he gets is God's relentless grace. Grace that affects not just him, but the whole human race. And that grace comes about through the birth of one of his descendants, born in the tribe of Judah, one of the sons born to him by unloved Leah, Jesus was born to be a saviour, a saviour for sin, to take the judgment we deserve, a saviour in whom our misplaced desires find fulfilment. And that's why we need to go briefly to another well in John chapter 4. In fact, we're going to see it's the same well. So if you'd like to flick forwards with me to John chapter 4. We're going to look to see there to find undeserved fulfilment for Jacob's desires and our misplaced desires. So fulfilment. Verse 6. Do you see Jacob's well? We're there again. And a woman comes. Now, we've seen this film before, we're thinking. We know what happens when a woman comes to a well. It's going to be a love story. But this woman is different. She's a Samaritan. This is a twist. How can Jews associate with Samaritans? This is the houses of Montague and Capulet, if you like. If this is a love story, it's going to be a story of love against the odds. But as we read down, we discover this is a woman with a past. A story of broken love of five husbands. The man she now lives with is not her husband. This is a story about a life made empty by striving for love and finding that it never quite meets her desires. But what's this? The man has approached her. Will you give me a drink? Well, how can you do that when you are a Jew? Because verse 10, chapter 4, this is page 1067, because of who I am, the one who has come to give living water that will quench all our thirst and all our desires and unlike the water in the well and unlike all those other things that human beings long for but find disillusioning and disappointing in the end this water will never run out a spring of water welling up to eternal life now that water that Jesus talks about as living water is also a reference to a sacrifice that Israel were required to make. And we, you can read about it another time in Numbers chapter 19, where the ashes, the ashes from a sacrificed heifer would be mixed in water to create living water. The water of cleansing from sin and ceremonial uncleanness. We need Jesus' living water, not just to, to fill us and meet our deepest desires, but we need Jesus' living water to cleanse us, to purify us on the inside from sin, from rebellion against God, from being deceivers and manipulators like Jacob, from being those who would rather strive to prove ourselves than to accept God's free gift of grace in Christ. Now, Jacob's son 
would end up fulfilling Jacob's greatest need, providing forgiveness through his death, providing cleansing and a fresh start and new life in Christ. It's what Jacob needed and it's what we need. In this chapter in Genesis that we've been looking at, what we see is a portrait of human beings as we really are. Deceitful, scheming, self-centred, determined to get our way at any cost. And we see the fruit of living like that. Like Jacob, we end up enslaved we, as each desire turns to disillusionment with yet another seven years to get what we think we really need next until we run out of life and we die. Tim Keller, commenting on this passage, puts it like this. If you make Rachel your bottom line, the person you can't live without, or you have an equivalent in your work or your possessions or your academic success or whatever it might be, you go to bed with Rachel, as it were, but in the morning, it's always Leah. When it comes to marriage, the best marriages are the ones where two people don't look to each other to meet every possible deepest need because they know the other one will let them down. The water will run out. You will be thirsty again. But the best marriages look together to Jesus who has living water that wells up to eternal life and then they commit to serving him together. It's the same if you're longing for marriage. Long to know Jesus better because the water in his well will never dry up. It's the same if your longings lie in all the other things we've been talking about. Remember, in the morning, it's always layer. Go instead to Jesus. The tragedy is that those things we strive for instead of God are a parody of what God will freely give us in Jesus and in his living water. We spend our lives and move from well to well, as it were, from partner to partner or from job to job or from house to house, looking for that one thing that we've been missing just to get everything in place so we can boost our personal happiness formula and quench our thirst and make everything okay. Why do that? when in Christ we are offered living water that never dries up, that deals with our sin at the cross as he takes the judgment we deserve on his own shoulders and he opens eternity for us. So have you come to Christ to receive that living water? You can do that today. And will we keep coming to him in the face of of our sin in the face of our misplaced desires and the disillusionment to which they lead. Let's pray now. Father, in our sin and in our brokenness, we so easily 
look to Rachel's and to things that we think will meet our deepest needs and problems. And then we carry on doing that when we find that they don't. As we're conscious of ways that we're doing that in our lives, even now, may we see the foolishness of doing that. May we see that that way ends not in life but in death. And may we come instead to Jesus, who has living water that will never run out. And may we long instead to know him better and better. Through all the rest of the lives that you give us. And we come to him, whether for the first time, whether again today, we come and we receive the living water that he offers. Amen.